Dina, what's going on, pal? Thanks for calling in. Yeah, thank you for having me. Olympian, author, one of the greatest runners in American history, five world records, mother, wife. Dina, what don't you do? <laughs> oh, gosh. You know, I mean, luckily, I have passion to do a lot. So um, with a little bit of gratitude and optimism, it seems to be the energy available to do it all. I love it. Where are you calling me from? Uh, Mammoth Lakes, California is where I've lived for 19 years. And please tell me the Olympic medal is draped around your neck as we do this podcast. Uh, it is not, but the, the laurel wreath that was put on my head during the awards ceremony is actually on our office wall. So I am looking at it right now. And it's really special to me, more special even than that medal, because the six Olympic uh, medalists, from the marathon, the three men and the three women actually got their laurel wreaths from Athena's ancient olive tree because the marathon was born in Greece. So it's pretty special, not just representing that we reached the goal together, but um, more representative of the fact that I wasn't born an Olympian or with grit and endurance, that these were um, traits that I had to really nurture over the years. So it's just a reminder that if we can't do something in the moment, that if we stick with it long enough, um, those doors open for us and we have the attributes and characteristics to be able to make our dreams come true. If you want to send that medal this way, if you're not truly valuing it, I'm, I'm cool if you want to send it my way to New York City. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Hey, hey Dean, during quarantine and stuff, what's one show you found yourself binge watching that you never watched before? Um, Yellowstone, we're watching, so we don't even have a television, okay. um, so we have to wait for it to be available, um, a couple days later to stream it, but, um, we, so we've, we've never really been into any television show, but so many people had, have, have told us that we would love it, and we are loving every episode, just sitting on the edge of our seats and just really rooting for each character and <laughs> cringing when they make the wrong choice. So that's been that's been our, our quarantine um, habit that we've picked up. Running is one of those things that everyone's going to do tomorrow. Tomorrow I'm going to go running. Tomorrow I hit the treadmill. When did the fascination of running happen with you? Um, you know, it was... It was really at a, at, luckily at a young age. I, I, I think it's because I fell so very short at all the other sports my parents were introducing to me <laughs> that when, when I had this sense of, of ease and maybe the fact that running is so uncomplicated as, as something like basketball and soccer and, um, and softball and ice skating that um, I would, would say that I failed in, but maybe I just didn't have the attention span or the, or the care. And it wasn't until 11 years old when my parents finally um, worried about my self-esteem, uh, let me loose with the, with the Lost Virginist Comets. And I ran in the Santa Monica Mountains and just fell in love to that, with the sport that day. And really, even now, um, last Sunday, just like the habit from running from my front door and getting in my half hour to an hour every day was starting to be monotonous. And so I just explored in the backcountry, and that's just how I regained my my running soul is by exploring a new trail. And you went to a high school out in California. How did you get to Arkansas and become a Razorback? How did that happen? Yeah, I basically just uh, followed a great coach there, Lance Harder, um, coached at uh, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, and this was his first recruiting year being at the University of Arkansas, and because Lance was a native Californian, um, I knew that he would he would show up at a lot of California races anyway. So I got a, a great 
education, the, um, the creative writing program in Arkansas was one of the top five in the country when I chose to go there. So I just feel like I got the best of everything, the education that I wanted and being one of the best track and field programs in the country. And so I was really able to, um, to, to, um, to get the best out of, out of those five years in Arkansas. Now, I have a ton of basketball players on, football, baseball players, and we talk a lot about their crazy uh, crazy recruiting stories. How's recruiting for runners? Now, I know you went there for the coach. Obviously, is not as high profile as the other sports, but is it an intense uh, like program? Um, you know... I went on five recruiting trips and, um, and they were, they had, they were a little obnoxious in every, in every, <laughs> every sense of the word from like one, one school sticking their star, uh, male runner to host me throughout the week and like took me to the movies. I'm like, this feels more like a date weekend than I'm learning anything about this program. And so it was kind of, it was just like interesting, interesting tactics that went along. But, um, when I went to Arkansas, I actually felt, pretty naive when I got to these other schools, like just not knowing the right questions to ask or what to look for. But all of, all of those questions that were, that were under the surface were just answered at Arkansas. The team was so tight knit and honest and social with one another. And I, I came from a very tight knit team in high school. So I was like, Oh, this is what I'm looking for. I needed, I needed to find a community to be a part of, not, not just another ego on the team. So I really just, fell in love with everything about Arkansas from the, the education standpoint to the tight knit team. Um, and so I really just had, had a ball there. And what years were you running there in the SEC? Um, I was there from um, 91 to 96. So you were there when they won the basketball championship when Corliss Williamson, and those guys won the title. I sure was. It was one of the craziest street <laughs> parties I have ever been to. It was really insane. Just the whole main street, Dixon Street, going up into campus was just rowdy with, with partygoers <laughs> and music and confetti. It was just really, um, really an, an, amazing, an amazing accomplishment. And I, I guess I, it seemed really fun at the time. I was just wrapped in the, in the college atmosphere, but... It wasn't until years years later that I realized what a big deal that is. Such a big, big deal for um, for a college team to to win at the national stage. And every year when I'm filling out my <laughs> um, my my March Madness uh, uh, picks, I, I think of that. I think of back to that time. So extraordinary. So you graduate from Arkansas, and again with sports, I'm more familiar with. You declare for the NFL draft. You as a boxer, you sign with top rank or whoever. How does this decision happen to turn pro as a runner, and how does that work? Do you, you know, sign with a sponsor? How'd you make that decision? Yeah, so a lot of a lot of people who are just stars coming out of college, they have they have shoe companies and big sponsors just um, just hounding them and throwing out offers to their agents. For me, it was more of a: Do I want to continue baking, or and um, and open and make it maybe opening up a storefront instead of being this behind-the-scenes person, or do I really think I can pursue this professional career? And it wasn't until um, our assistant coach Mylon Donnelly said, "You know, I really don't think you've reached your potential here," and it gave me some um, a little bit of 
information and I ended up calling Coach Vigil in Colorado and within five minutes I had regained my love of running and really felt driven to to see what my potential in the sport was just all in living that lifestyle so I feel really grateful that um, that he adopted me as one of his own the only female that he was coaching at the time and within within weeks I saw that I was becoming the strongest version of myself possible it wasn't until I won a national championship that I finally signed my first deal and as pathetic as it was it paid my rent and and gave me the added benefit of taking over my own um, car insurance, which made me feel very adult <laughs> that my parents no longer had to do it for me. Um, and so it wasn't until, you know, I feel like I earned my keep through the sport. It wasn't, things weren't thrown at me. I had to really, really work hard for for um, that notoriety and to now be with ASICS um, Shoe Corporation. I've been with them for over 20 years the, um, the ASICS brand is an acronym, Onomasana Incorpore Sano, or a sound mind and a sound body. And I have spent my entire professional career chasing that mental edge, that mental side that would just let me reach my poten- potential physically. And so I feel like it was very serendipitous that I ended up with a company and have been able to with- withstand that relationship for so many years, despite pregnancy and even even long after my personal bests are behind me, that I can work with them um, as part of a part of a team um, in the sport has just been an incredible ride. Yeah, that shows loyalty on yours your part and their part also absolutely absolutely it definitely it definitely feels like family I'm obviously not gonna you know my my walls will shut down if, if that relationship <laughs> changes one day uh, my egos my ego's gonna have to protect me a little bit but I really do so deeply value the people within the company and the values that they stand by that creed of sound mind and sound body that they have lived since the the um, the foundation right after World War II. Now, when you become a pro, do you pick your races based on what location, how much time you'll train for them, uh, the prestige? How do you pick your races? Yeah, that's a um, that's a, a good question, Michael. I think I you know I picked out that big goal for the year. You know, in in um, in the the NFL would be the Super Bowl, and you just like pick you pick um, that big that big pie in the sky goal, and then and then I pick some support races, but. Mostly, I love to just stay home and train my butt off and, and kind of be incognito in those months and then just show up on the start line with a, with a little bit of, of pizzazz and excitement to show what I've been working for. But I do love racing, especially, like, you know, I ran cross country and track and then moved on to the roads and, and cross country was really great because you competed against every endurance runner on the heart, in the hardest conditions. So to me, it just showed um, really who was the, the grittiest in the, in the world. And then the track was a really great place to see consistency and running around in those circles, chasing PRs under, um, um, under more constant, um, more constant conditions. And then the road racing that happens in the spring and fall, which is less dependable weather, you can get 80 degree days and you can get freezing rain, (laughs) but, um, it was really there in, in the, in cross country and track, I always felt like I was comp- I was performing for people, for the crowds and the stadium, and um, and it wasn't until I got into road racing that I really felt a part of a really great community of runners, a 
very broad um, participation of of people across the globe from every country and different ages and different motivations and ethnicities. And it was a really it was a really um, beautiful experience. 2001 was my very first marathon in New York City. It happened right after September 11th. Mm-hmm. So the humanity factor was really strong, and the patriotism, even with people from around the globe, was was so supportive of seeing New York rebound in a in a beautiful way. So I really felt um, that road racing kind of kind of feels like home to me. I'm so excited, and I was really looking forward to having you on because I wanted to pick your brain. Like I said, I'm a sports fanatic. Olympic fanatic, and you're answering all the questions of a sport that I don't have much knowledge in. So in other sports, like you mentioned basketball, when you miss a bunch of free throws, you're practicing free throws. In baseball, you're studying pitchers. You're taking batting practice. As a runner, how do you improve your time and performance, even if you're consistently running? How do you improve that? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately for running, it's 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 not any one thing. You have to you have to work on your speed work for efficiency, and you have to work on your um, your tempo runs for strength and being able to kind of extend that that red line that you're running. You want it to last a mile, two miles, three miles longer than than last month, and then you need those long runs to build. Um, to build endurance, which is really just building capillaries in your body, which allow you to more efficiently transport blood to your working muscles. So there's so much going on and you kind of have to hit all of those in order for the buildup to be successful. So it's not any, any one thing, but just like any other sport, it is the consistency that, that matters. You've got to show up day in and day out, no matter how you're feeling and put in the work. And I think what that shows you is that even if you get a game day, um, a race day that is that is less than ideal. Maybe the weather's not great. Maybe you're feeling under the weather, um, but you'll still be able to to hit that goal because you've you've worked through it in those days that were subpar anyway. So working through it. So some of it is actually mental. Yeah. Yeah. R- really. So you have to sometimes motivate yourself to get out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's even. I, I think it's it's. It, to me, it's more—it's—it's it's more of a subconscious character thing, and I'm sure there's physiological stuff going on that you're—you're still—you're um, still building um, when you're when you're not feeling motivated, or even your body's not feeling that great. Um, that physiologically, you're still building your machine. But I think sub- on a subconscious level, it shows you that that you're dedicated, that you show up, that things don't have to be like a red carpet doesn't have to be rolled out in order for you to, to, um, to be a superstar that day, that you can show up no matter the circumstances and really, and really show who you are. And I think, I always think in my hardest moments that, that it's, I don't want the challenge to define me. I want to define myself in spite of this challenge. And in running, it always gets, if you're doing it right, it always gets hard. So it's a little like masochistic that you always get to that point that, that you're struggling or hitting a wall, but it's, it's, it's the person that you nurtured along the way to get through that, over it, around it, to get to that finish line that really makes you. So for me, when I start to backpedal in a race, like, oh, what does this race really mean? It's so stupid. It's one race on a Saturday. That I can go to the next one. I think, okay, you're right. It has nothing to do with this race. It has to do with your character. And how do you want it to be defined? Do you want to give up or do you want to dig down? Do you want to throw in the towel or do you want to drop that hammer? So I get a little like you got to have a, like a little tough talk when things get when things get hard but in my mind it always comes down to defining my character and making that mental habit to always persevere yeah you're pumping me up with that speech and i'm going to be honest with you i'm yeah. pumped up <laughs> 
run together. <laughs> tomorrow, tomorrow. <laughs> So, so like I said, I'm an Olympic freak. I'm obsessed with it, every sport. So I want to talk about your time there. Is that cool? Yes, of course. You competed in three, which is fascinating. Three Olympics, which is – forget about that. A feat in itself is just fascinating. What's the process, the trials, and the schedule to compete and earn a spot on Team USA? Is it a point system? Is it a vote? How does that work? Yeah, so in order to, to earn a spot on the U.S. Olympic team, you not only have to run an Olympic time standard, so you have to already be be pretty fast, mm-hmm. you also have to get in the top three at the U.S. trials. So um, some, peop- uh, some countries actually do selection processes where they just select their three to represent them, but the U.S. says, you know, you've got to show up and perform on – on Olympic Trials Day, it also gives a great venue for a national championships with a lot of red, white, and blue hype. And so, so getting getting in that top three while also hitting the the Olympic stand, having the Olympic standard, it doesn't have to be run in that race specifically. You just have to have had run that fast um, within a within the past um, more than a year. So it's a very fair system. And um, and so my very first Olympic Games was in 2000 in Sydney, Australia, and when that red, white, and blue uniform shows up on your doorstep, it is the best, better than even crossing that finish line, winning the Olympic trials and an Olympic trials record. Um, the moment of that uniform showing up at my doorstep was, was the best part. Um, just knowing that this is the ideal, this is the ideal and the epitome of sport to, to represent your country. So pretty, pretty amazing experience right from the get-go. And then being in Sydney, Australia, just an amazing place. To this day, my husband, who I met that summer, my husband and I say that it's the, the only place besides Mammoth Lakes that we would consider moving to because we loved it. We loved the city so very much. Oh, that's um, wild, yeah. Um, yeah, but unfortunately, um, where it went wrong was my performance. I didn't even make the finals of the 10,000 meters. So um, so I kind of walked off the, the track with my head down and, and kept my head down my whole way home, tail between my legs the whole way back to the United States. Question about the Olympic Village, because us non-elite athlete, athletes, I'm talking about myself, uh, they always describe it as like a college vibe, partying, meeting people from other countries, hooking up. Is that true? Was it like a cool, wild scene in there? It is so true. Like the, See, I should have been um, the, an Olympian. Medical, I knew it. The, the medical facilities can't keep enough condoms in their <laughs> bowl at the front desk. But but also, what aside from kind of the crude side of the Olympic Village, I will say it's so amazing. Maya Angelou, the great writer, said um, was quoted loosely. I'm quoting her loosely, but we're so much more alike than we are different. We we have more than con- that connects us than keeps us apart. And that is so true in the Olympic Village to just see every country represented and sitting in the chow hall, eating their food and making that social hour last last long into the evening. And we are so very alike. And it, and it's just, it was just so prevalent there to see how we all walk in this tiny little town created for us, that we all walk the streets the same. We all have it was just really um, a beautiful beautiful thing to see when when there's so in a lot of the olympic games i i ran in we were at war with another country or had a huge presence in some country Mm -hmm. and so even to the point where we had fbi agents with us but it was so beautiful to see how sports can get it right that we can just be on the playing field and knock the heck out of each other and elbow and push and grind 
to the death and and um and and yet we can and yet we could sit down and have a meal together and and enjoy each other's company so it was a really really beautiful scene for me from the very first experience and now you probably don't want to get injured so you're not training very hard while you're there what do you do when you're not competing you know, a lot, a lot of like the tapering stuff is just, you know, we, we have book exchanges. We, we trade books with one another so we could read in the day. We really make breakfast, lunch, and dinner last three hours long. You know, it's, you just sit, you make every, you just extend, extend everything where, which is the opposite is exactly true at home where I'm like throwing laundry and putting food on the table for the family, you know, walking the dogs and everything's rush, rush, rush. Time seems to slow down in the village and, um, and you kind of you kind of just extend whatever your um, whatever your priorities are for the day. You know your gym your gym session might just be three exercises, but you take a half hour break in between them just so that you can <laughs> be in there and use use the day to your um, to your to your liking. So it is it is fun that um, that that's all you you know you, you get, it's a place where you have a very narrow focus on your performance. So you're just um, you're just focused on that and doing the little things in the day that you need to do while while these great chefs cook for you and the housekeeping makes your bed for you. And so it's just you're really pampered and taken, take it like very well taken care of. But you get to do exactly what you need to do so that you could be at the height of your performance when game day comes. Did you know after you didn't medal there that you were coming back for you were going to try to come back four years later and do it again? Um. Oh, sorry, what I didn't I didn't get the You didn't medal in Sydney. Did you know in your mind like I'm going to go again? I have to go back 4 years from now. You knew it was, you wanted to come back and be an Olympian again? Oh yeah, it was even on the plane ride home. I was like this was really amazing, but the um the height of the Olympic spirit is to bring a medal home for your country and I am going to focus the next 4 years on doing that. So, it was even moving from Colorado to California and creating this group of the best distance runners in the country so we could push each other. And um, Meb Kefleski, my teammate and I, from this small town in Mammoth Lakes, California, this ski town at altitude, so we could get that, um, that altitude benefit. Um, I won bronze uh, the first weekend, and the, and the next weekend, Meb earned a silver medal. So he won up to me, but, um, but I'm, I'm so proud so proud of our entire team for really putting in that vision and that effort to, to see that we could, um, the distance, distance, you know, U.S. sprinters have, have long been um, historically strong on the world stage and distance running wasn't so much and we, we really sought to change that. So four years later in Athens, where you, uh, you win the medal, it, where it all started, the history, the beauty of Athens, goosebumps beforehand? I know it's a generic question, but you nervous beforehand? I, I, you know, I wasn't nervous because I was so confident. I, I really just felt like I need to, I just needed to play out the race. And I really felt, uh, maybe subconsciously, it's not that I, that I maybe made conscious thoughts of this ahead of time, but if I didn't meddle, because I didn't want to put that in my head, if I didn't, it was because other people were, were well, more well prepared than I was, but I knew I was the fittest I've ever been in my life. And I remember telling my coach, we were, um, on the at this resort on the island of Crete for a month leading up to the race just to adapt to the heat and the humidity and the time zone. And it was a whole U.S. track and field team. And I sat next to my coach at dinner the night before we were leaving to fly into Athens. And I said, you know, 
I, this buildup has been incredible. Thank you so much for being away from your wife for the entire year so that, cause they live in Arizona so that we could work together to do this. And I know that, I know that, that I have the ability to, to meddle this weekend, but I feel like the person that I have become just in this journey, I'm so happy to have worked to, to have worked at this with you, that it's almost as if the medal doesn't matter. Like I already felt the enhancement from what we had done, that the gold medal was the, the gold medal was within me and it was that feeling of confidence. That was that was the beauty of good preparation. Um, and so there wasn't a, a single time except for 10K to go that I was like, you know, I better start rolling really fast <laughs> so that I can get get one more girl and, and, and make this podium. Well, I went and watched the ending of the race today. At one point of that race, did you know, okay, I got this. I'm going to medal. Uh, not until I was about 200 meters from the finish line because um, – because I had been counting, again, we had FBI agents, like, leapfrogging on the course just okay, for our okay. safety. Yeah, and so they were telling us, like, you're, you're in 15th place, and then you're in 12th place. And oh, so really? once I got to, like, yeah, once I got to 12th place, I'm like, okay, I think I can count from here. And so I started <laughs> counting down as I'm, as I'm passing women on the, on the street. And keep in mind, when we got dropped off in the town of Marathon for the start, it was 101 degrees. So it was the hottest day of the Olympic oh. Games. And it obviously was, was cooling off because the sun eventually went down. And I, I saw Elfnesh Elemu in front of me from Ethiopia. She kind of stumbled in her stride. And at the end of the marathon, if you can't keep your feet under you, it's a huge sign of a, a big tell of fatigue. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to hold my breath and straighten up my posture and just blow by her. And as soon as I did, and to what I thought was in third place, passing her to, to get a medal, someone in very clear English, it was a woman, a woman on the side of the road, said, way to go, girl, you're now in fourth. And I was like, oh, how could I have miscounted? I mean, I know I'm bad at math, but I'm really just counting down. Is it really, is, should it really be that hard? And um, and so I, I said, you know what, I'm just going to keep plowing ahead. It's the only thing I can do is keep this momentum. And when I get into the stadium, I'll figure out what place I'm in. And so in the stadium was this booming voice, um, this beautiful female voice that said something and said my name and then said something in Greek. And then her again was this beautiful voice and she said something in French. And I thought, dear God, please make this next voice be English or Spanish so I know what place I'm in. And so it was um, it was Gary Hill who was who was the editor of, of Track and Field News Magazine. His voice is very distinct to me because he's covered so many races. And he said, Dina Castor of the United States is going to capture bronze. And I erupted in tears because mm -hmm. my entire family was in the stadium and, and even cousins, like extended family and my agent and my coach and my husband. And there was just so many meaningful. The only people really missing from the stadium were the three men that I beat up on all summer long to train <laughs> for this race. Um, that were all end up injured by the end of the by the end of the summer, but they really just made the um, made the preparation so much fun and joy to me is a big is a big driver in in my performance. And so to have everybody there out of that huge marble stadium full of people, I clearly heard my mom's yelling above and beyond anybody else's. <laughs> 
how you because you you broke down near the finish line like you said and every run you did every early morning wake up every sacrifice how do you describe that it's like a boxer winning the heavyweight championship the world it's the culmination of everything you ever wanted how do you not just collapse there and just freak out yeah it was i mean i, I it was a it was a beautiful moment i had tears because it felt like such an intimate moment because i worked so hard with so many people, with a physiologist who recommended I take workouts up to a higher elevation to in order to get um, a better benefit from altitude, to my coach who I've been working with for more than four years and my husband's like utter dedication, like just flawless dedication and in stretching me and, and drawing me ice baths and giving me mas- going to massage school and then giving me massages like there was just so much buy-in for all these all these wonderful people, and so I felt like they they got me to that start line in the best shape possible. And my thank you to them had to be earning that medal. That's that's the only way I could thank them <laughs> genuinely enough was 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 to earn that medal for them because they were so disciplined in what they gave and gave year in and year out. How'd you celebrate that night? Oh my gosh, it was the best. Actually, <laughs> I. I I wrote I wrote a book and it called Let Your Mind Run and my co-author said Dina you cannot end every chapter with a meal and a celebration you have to pick one <laughs> and so I chose Athens because I had just gotten out of drug testing it was maybe midnight by the time I got out of drug testing and I'm trying to hail a, a cab in my skimpy little uniform hail a cab <laughs> with my agent and he's like trying to flag people down he finally got uh, got a got a cab to pick us up because we looked shady, I'm sure, and brought it in the middle of the night and brought us to this restaurant that my family was dining, and I got it. The restaurant was completely packed in this back alley, and I got a standing ovation when I walked in. It was so incredible, and we ate until the sun came up. That, that the just, wine, the, oh. the Greek wine was flowing. People <laughs> kept coming up to the table. It was really just such a, such a an epic, such an epic way to end that that month over over in Greece and on the Greek islands. Well, I'm glad you brought up your book. Let your mind run. A memoir of thinking my way to victory. What made you want to write a book? I didn't. <laughs> I, I did not want to write a book. <laughs> Because, because really, I could care less if people know my personal best times or what my workouts are. But as soon as my co-author said, yeah, but your mind is different than, than others, because she's a runner. Michelle Hamilton is a runner herself, and she would tell me, like, you think so differently. And it would have been much easier to write a book on how to master mile repeats than my thought process through every, every race and triumph and defeat. So, um, so it was a hard, arduous process, three years in the making. But, um, but what it came down to is us deciding it was not going to be a memoir. We called it an instructional memoir mm-hmm. so that I didn't care that people learned more about me, but I hoped they would discover more about themselves and their mental strengths. And so that was my motivation every single day when I sat down to, to write these chapters. I was actually going to ask you that next. Like, why should non-runners get your book? So it's not just about running. Yeah, it's, so it's, it's, it, running is the vehicle that drives the story, but it's just how if we pay attention to our thoughts and our perspective and, and really our surroundings, how much we can gain and that, and that we really are in control. Our minds are so malleable. We may have been born a little more positive or negative, and maybe life events have shaped us a little more one way. 
But, but if we just pause, we might not even be able to control that immediate thought, but we can control every thought that comes after it to talk us into or out of what we want to do. And so we really just have so much power and it's let it, this book is to, in, in my hope is that anybody reading it, whether you're a CEO or in some other sport or, or just a, a hobby painter, whatever it is that you can utilize any, any of the tactics I've used in this book to your own striving. I had Martin Dugard on. He's the author who writes all the killing books with Bill O'Reilly, and he wrote a book on running. So I'm going to ask you the same question I asked him. Now, yours became a New York Times bestseller, but were you nervous writing a book on running, which can only appeal to maybe like a certain niche of runners, of, of readers? Yeah, you know, I wasn't nervous about about writing it. The, the part that I was nervous about most was making sure I was representing people properly. I was mm-hmm. so nervous about getting it right because our perspectives aren't aren't everybody else's perspectives. Our um, how we identify with with people is our is our own identity of that person, not the person's actual identity. So I felt a lot of pressure in getting the characters in the book right and making sure that I was representing them authentically, but then also representing myself authentically. I had to peel back that onion big time to get to the root of who I was and my thinking. And so it was a really arduous process. So just writing and rewriting and, and writing a, a fifth, sixth, and seventh time. I remember telling Michelle um, when she's like, yeah, could you journal on this? I'm like, <laughs> I have four times. And she's like, yeah, I know. But the amazing thing is we get something new out of it every time you do it. And I'm like, damn it. <laughs> I want to ask you one other thing about the Olympics because in 2008, you were injured in Beijing in the Olympics. Did you get injured during the race or before it? I did. You know, I went into that race thinking I was chasing gold that day. And at mile three in my third Olympic experience, Mm. um, I broke my third metatarsal. It snapped in half without any warning, and I could not put my foot down for two months. And you knew then you were done with the Olympics, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I was helped onto a bus we call the sag wagon. And uh, it's interesting because I've really run the gamut of the Olympic experience from just being happy to be there and participate to winning a medal to failing and falling very short of what I showed up to do. But I learned the most about myself in Beijing. Athens was a big celebration, a big meal, big group hug. And Beijing was a lot of self-reflection of of, I remember yelling into the t- into this towel I was crying into on the bus and saying, why me? And I popped my head up thinking, how embarrassing. Why me? Like, why would I want this to happen to anybody else? <laughs> the, the better question here would be why. And I really think I was able to get to that resolution quickly because I practiced positivity and optimism so often that it showed up when I needed it the most. And so right there on that bus, I thought, you know what, I'm going to figure out why when I was, thought I was at my fittest, was I so severely unhealthy? And as soon as I figure this out, I'm going to be stronger than ever. And so just got on, the, on, that, on that path, that goal of, of figuring things out. And I remember sitting on the deck eating a, eating a steak and gorgonzola cheese, arugula sandwich on a Shibata roll. <laughs> Um, and enjoying the view from my front deck when my mom called for the millionth time and to ask how I was doing. I said, I'm fine. I'm the same as I was 20 minutes ago when she, she called, when you called. And she said, I'm sorry, Aww. I just don't believe you. This is the first time running has been really taken away from you that, you, that you, know, you go on vacations and do these things, but it's always on your own terms. And I questioned why I was okay. And I really think that 
in that in that moment, I realized something so profound for my future that I wasn't just passionate about running. I was passionate myself and that and it's something I try to share with so many people because if people are creative and lose their jobs or passionate about their sport and can no longer do it, the passion and creativity don't lie within the hobby. They lie within you. So put it into something else, like find that something else because you're where the passion lies, not the sport. And so just trying to, trying to, but that takes me overthinking because I overthink everything. So, <laughs> um, so, but I got to this place where it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm me whether I have running or not. And I can sit here and be just as passionate about making this amazing sandwich and, and eating with a view than I am with, with putting in mile repeats or a long run. So it was a really great lesson came out of it. So I feel very, very fortunate for the for the successes in my careers, but the in the failures and some of those harder moments is where I've learned the most about myself. Yeah, it seems that you're so positive that in your failures, you kind of came out stronger than you did when you won. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Just finding finding something within me that that was resilient and and determined to to make the make the best of the moment, but also show show who I am when a challenge is is thrown upon me. Okay, ready for some quick hit questions to finish up? Yes. I'm a New Yorker, born and raised. I've worked in New York City Marathon the last 17 years. What's your favorite part of that course? Oh, I, I have to say the Verrazano Narrows Bridge at the start line. It shakes with anticipation. Mm-hmm. Like you could actually feel the bridge vibrating with, with 50,000 people standing on it. It's crazy. You competed in the three Olympics, only three more than me, so it's not that big of a deal. Who was an ath- <laughs> <laughs> who was an athlete you met that you were in awe of? Like you wanted to meet and you met them at the Olympics. Like holy crap! Oh, this is 2020, so I'd have to say Kobe Bryant. Oh, that's wild! And did you take a picture with him or anything or no? I didn't. I didn't at all. It was just. It was just meeting. I mean. I mean, we meet a million people when we're together in the village. So um, I probably wasn't as memorable, but I just remembered that um, that was part of the, what makes the Olympic Village so so fantastic is that you have the gamut of, of sports, but really the gamut of, of the world represented right there in a small space. I love that you're talking so much about food. After a big race, what's your biggest cheat meal? You know you need to, you're going to go fat, you're going to have a huge meal. What's your number one meal after a big race? So pizza, but I also eat pizza the night before a race, but like maybe the thin crust artisanal <laughs> pizza. And then the night after it's like Lou Melnati's from Chicago, yes, okay, Chicago okay. like a really big deep dish greasy. And the night before I might have a glass of Pinot Noir. And then the night after I drink the whole bottle. <laughs> <laughs> Generic hacky question, but what do you listen to on a run? Oh, you know, I love anything with a really big beat to it. Like it has to be, it has to be strong. Like strong house music is is definitely definitely my style. Right now, I love the song "Bang" by AJR and "Kings and Queens" by Ava Max. You gonna everyone who comes on my show, I ask them this, but I think I know your answer. The coolest piece of memorabilia you own is it the crown? Yeah, I think yeah, definitely the the laurel wreath from from Athens. And how about this? The coolest person in your phone, if you want to impress everybody, you're here in New York. We're at a bar. You want to impress the bar, besides showing the the bronze medal. Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you back? Oh my God, that's so funny. Um, you know, I I think I would say Joan Benoit Samuelson. She's the first ever Olympic gold medalist 
in the women's marathon from the 1984 LA Olympics and, um, and just, um, just an amazing ambassador to this sport. But I think if I was having dinner with a bunch of people, they would definitely know who she is mm-hmm. and be impressed that she texts me right back. <laughs> <laughs> and the last one, my wife wanted me to ask you this one. I'm newly married and my wife and I don't have many arguments yet, but how is it having a husband as a coach? And she wanted to know, has he ever slept on the couch because of an argument about your running? No, no, he hasn't. He's never slept on the couch. He's only he's only slept on the couch um, at the 2005 Chicago Marathon, which um, which I went on to win. But the night before the race, he had one too many pints of Guinness in the bar with my agent, Ray Flynn, and, um, and ended up having to sleep on the, the couch of our suite because he didn't want to wake me um, either by being loud or by reeking of beer when he walked in. So we slept on the couch the night before my race. <laughs> Dina, give the plug where everyone can find you, follow you, get the book and everything else. Yeah, um, I'm on Instagram at, at Dina8050 and on uh, Twitter and, and Facebook just with my name, at Dina Caster. So um, follow me, get in touch, and at, uh, again, the sporting community is, is one that I love and adore, and if I can help you be a little more optimistic to rise to your potential, I'd love to be there for you. Dina, this was an absolute blast. Thank you for coming on. I learned so much, and I had so much fun. Thank you so much, Michael. Have a great day. Talk soon. Goodbye.